Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host Stefan Neff. Today is another great day for an interview. And would it not be nice if there was no need for this particular interview? Because regrettably we are talking about extreme violence and we are talking about the sheer fact that violence can strike absolutely everyone in this world and it more or less it will strike you and your family in various degrees of severity and often enough we are watching television and, and you, you look at aftermaths in Hollywood and in CSI and NCIS whatever you prefer which crime show from my own experience and from the experience of my guest things are actually very different so therefore today we would talk about a kind of a special grief um, that is that grief of people who have who are the, the survivors of someone being killed in their family and so it is it's high time that we address that topic and to discuss that topic I've got today Jan Canty on my show Jan has been in a very dark place and I'm honored that she's sharing her story with me and tell us about her book <clears throat> and about the lessons that she has learned um, so that others have maybe a bit more guidance and can can maybe relate a bit more to the reality Jan thank you so much for coming on to my show thank you for having me I appreciate it Jan maybe let's start directly with where your story started, i.e. not not what I normally go is, hey, tell me when you were a young girl, what did you want to be, etc. But in this particular case, I think we're cutting straight to the chase, hey? Well, I had a pretty calm life up until July 13th of 1985. That particular evening, my husband was due home at seven. And I remember it was a very stormy day. It was thunder and lightning and hail all day long, high winds. And I remember calling him earlier in the day and asking him to come home early because of the weather. But he, he said, I'd be home at seven. So I sat down to watch a three-hour special. It was on AIDS. Um, so I lost track of time. And I looked up after watching the show and it was dark out. And I'm thinking, wait, he's overdue. And indeed he was, it was two hours overdue, but I thought maybe it's just the weather. And at first I wasn't particularly alarmed, but as the hours drew by, I got more worried and eventually talked my neighbor. This is before the internet, remind you. So my, I talked my neighbor into driving me downtown to his office building to see if I could find him. And there was no sign of him. The next morning, I tried to report him missing, but they would not take the report because it had not been 24 hours. And they were quite rude about it. They, they brushed me off and when I, when I kept standing there and they brushed me off and they said, well, go call the morgue. So I thought, okay, if the rule is 24 hours, I'll just, you know, technically I haven't seen him in 24 hours. So I went to the next police station and reported him missing. So nothing came of that, and another few days went by. My parents flew in to be with me, and I got a call from a detective, Landeros, about a week later, telling me to come, she wanted me to come down to police headquarters, and I thought, this can't be good. So I met her in front of the Detroit Police Headquarters building, which is a, I don't know, I think it's like 11 stories building, and she introduced herself and I noticed she pressed the button in the elevator to floor five and next to it, it said homicide division. And I thought, oh, this is getting worse by this minute. Mm -hmm. So we went up there and, and she was very professional. It's not any negative thing on her at all. She was not curt or anything, but we went in there and she introduced me to Inspector Gil Hill and he was a tall, lanky, black guy, very sparse on words. And I asked him if I could have my parents come in with me, and he let me do that. And basically what he told me was that he had good reason to believe 
that my husband had been murdered, but they didn't have his body yet. Because again, this is back in 85 when things were different in terms of DNA evidence. And that um, he'd been seen downtown in the company of John Carl Fry and Don Marie Spence, and had been giving them a lot of money. So he recommended I go home and check my finances and stay in touch. And it was very brief. I mean, I was there five, 10 minutes. And I left with more questions than I came in with. And I went home and indeed, not only was there no money, we were in debt. I mean, to the tune of in current dollars, $74,000. At this point in my life, I had just finished my postdoctoral fellowship within two weeks. So I had no income. I mean, I was just starting my career. So panic began to set in on a couple of levels. And I just was in a waiting mode for a while. So I called the, the media to help me find him, which was a mixed blessing because they just hovered like fruit flies over sangria from then on, ultimately causing me to leave the area two years later. But I needed them and they published him information they had uh, what changed things dramatically was that the news was percolating and one of the uh, accomplices, not the man who killed my husband, not John Fry, but his friend who helped bury his body parts, <clears throat> called the Detroit police station because he knew that he was going to be called if he didn't turn himself in because he was an accomplice. So he called and they made a arrangement where if he gave them the information they wanted, which was to lead them to the body, then he would have immunity from prosecution. And so he agreed. They put him on a little Cessna with a cadaver dog and some other detectives. Of course, I knew none of this till actually two years later, but they flew him uh, up to Northern Michigan, which is about 200 miles from the police station in the middle of the night in a July rainstorm. And he directed them to the suitcase where my husband's body parts have been buried. And indeed they found his identifiable remains. His unidentifiable remains have been tossed on the freeway. And because John and Don were pretty high so they gathered what parts they could find. They flew them back to Detroit. And I got another call from Detective Landeros the next morning, very early, about six or seven. I think it must have been six because she came at my house at seven and offered to drive me and my parents to the police headquarters to make the identification. And I'll never forget this. She's we pulled up in front of the morgue. It was an old building. It was built in the 1920s. It looked like an Egyptian tomb, kind of. It was old and smelly and in bad repair. And she said, you're not going to be alone, and this won't take long. And she held out her hand. And as wonderful as she was, I just couldn't take it. I just kept sitting there. It was like my feet were in concrete, like I was frozen. But my dad grabbed a hold of my elbow and he said, come on, let's go. And he pulled me out of the car gently. And she said, we need you to identify him because we need it for court. But we also want you to realize he's never coming home. So we walked into the building. It was early on a Sunday. It was a beautiful day outside, but the mood shifted dramatically when we walked in. It was very solemn and dark echoey, long halls. And my dad kept insisting he do it for me, but she would not let him. She said, we need it for court. So only she can testify to that. And so she tried to prepare me for what I would see visually as best she could, because as I mentioned, he'd been buried for two weeks and I was going to be asked to look at his head. And my dad said, well, if I can't do it for her, I at least want to come with her. My dad is, was a wonderful man. He's passed away now, but he went in with me 
and she was on one side. She didn't have to be there, mind you. She did not have to be there, but she did come. So I had Detective Landeros on one side and I had my dad on the other, which left my mom alone, which I didn't like, but I didn't want her to come either. It was kind of a catch-22 situation. So we went in there and indeed, it's just like she described. And I remember I couldn't speak. And she said, we'll have to repeat the procedure. So we did. And then she turned me around and we were leaving the building out the front entrance, but the media had assembled. And at this point in time, I hadn't been sleeping much. I hadn't been eating much. And I was very, very tired, very stressed. So my mind wasn't as alert and as uh, reality-based. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but I was not myself. And I looked out the window or the doorway of the building where these media had assembled. And they frightened me because what I thought I saw was a gun on a tripod. Obviously I didn't see a machine gun on a tripod. What I saw was a camera on a tripod, but in my state of mind, that's my first reaction. And I just flinched and Detective Landero saw what was going on and she turned me around and led me out the back door and into her squad car. And we went back to the police headquarters in her car. So that was the start of what I call my life before and my life after. It divided my life in two. And it was, from then on, it was like revelation after revelation. By that, I mean, I found out he'd been leading a double life for 18 months. He'd bankrupted us. The people that killed him, he was supporting them, buying them drugs. They had all our money. He'd even given them a photograph, I mean, a photograph album of the interior of our house, which I had assembled this album in case of an emergency of fire or something so I could identify what our belongings were with the estimated value of everything. Mm -hmm. So they had that in their possession as well. And then I got a call saying, well, you know, she's an IV drug abusing prostitute. So you have to go to your physician and see if you have AIDS. So that was humiliating because this was, they had just developed the AIDS test two weeks prior and it was not perfected. And I remember feeling so humiliated when I called the doctor's office because I felt like yelling and saying, I'm not an IV drug abusing prostitute. And I thought, you know, if prostitution is a victimless crime, why am I here? Why am I being put through this? So I met with the nurse, she drew my blood and I waited to get the results and went back in. He wouldn't tell me over the phone, which worried me, but it turned out that he said, you know, so far so good but this test is new, it's not perfected. There's false positives and false negatives. So you have to have it repeated every year for seven years to know you're in the clear. Wow. I don't know if you want me to keep going. Oh, uh, yes, please, yes, please. Okay, so my parents were there and they, my dad took a hold of, just volunteered to be responsible for taking charge of the front door and the phone. My mom volunteered to take charge of the food and just keeping things running. I couldn't have cared less about eating, but she had kept insisting I eat. I had lost a lot of weight. I had lost a lot of hair. I wasn't sleeping. And the media was just incessant. The phone never stopped ringing. I changed my phone number so many times I had to write it down. And still they found it. I don't know how because it was always unlisted. This is before cell phones. Mm. So that was my life until my parents said in, this is in July when all this broke. And in September, they said, we have to go back to Arizona. Mm. We have to go back to Arizona because our driver's license are expiring and we have to collect our dog. They've been 
our neighbor's been taking care of her for all these months and we have to get her. And I said, I understand. So we had a big garage sale and they took charge of that too, which was great. And I didn't care if I sold every single thing I had. I felt like walking away. I felt like getting in my car and just leaving. I didn't, material things meant absolutely nothing. So they did the garage sale, which I needed the money. Thank God I had that. And I sold everything I could possibly sell because the bills were astronomical. I mean, we owed money for taxes and car payments and house payments and you name it. So my parents left and that's about the time it started getting cold and dark early. And, and I went into a slump. There's no doubt about it. I, I felt very alone. I didn't know who to call. I, this is before the internet, so I didn't, I couldn't connect with anybody who understood. The police weren't there to hold my hand. Mm-hmm. And I just withdrew into myself and just tried to figure out what my next move was going to be. What am I going to do? How am I going to, I had no children, so that wasn't an issue. So I um, decided my next thing was to put the house on the market. Mm-hmm. But even that was an issue because Michigan law and till to this day is the same. If you have a homeowner that's been involved in a serious crime, you have to disclose that. It's considered a contaminated property. And it devalues the house and it makes it very difficult to sell. And it draws people that just are there for curiosity. So I had to sell the house. So that kept going on and all through the winter By spring, I finally sold it and I moved to a place I really liked. It was a small town house, like built in the 1920s, not too far away and changed my phone number again. But it didn't work because the media still was publishing stuff and and stuff was developing too. Um, we We had the preliminary examination coming up and I had to attend, I was subpoenaed, I didn't have a choice. So, that was the first time I'd seen the two defendants in court. And my mom and dad told me on the phone, they said, you know, don't be scared. And I thought, scared? I'm not scared. I was so angry by that time. I was not scared. I was so angry that I remember going into court and the defendant's table was to my left and it was very crowded in there. And it was a lot of security checks because they were worried about violence breaking out in the courtroom. I had to undergo multiple security checks to make sure I didn't have a knife or a gun or whatever. (laughs) So I was was walking by their table to my left and I behaved as if I'd been jostled by the crowd and slapped my hand on their table. But really I was just angry and I wanted them to know I was there they were been found out and I was not afraid of them. And I walked to the front of the courtroom and was sworn in. And the defense counsel took charge and very few questions. One of the questions he asked me was, did I give anybody permission to dissect my husband's body? And I said, no. And I said, and he didn't dissect him. He dismembered him. And there's a difference. And I looked over at the two defendants and they wouldn't look at me. And I remember how grayish green Dawn Marie Spence looked. And I thought, she's probably got hep C or something from all the drugs. She looked terrible. She looked bored is what she looked. And John Carl Fry, he's a big burly guy, kind of looked like Mr. Clean, but not quite as attentive to his hygiene with a lot of tattoos and I was so angry but I was only on the witness stand a few minutes I left and I did not go back for the trial and I thought why give the media more fodder for their press releases and nothing in that courtroom is going to change my life I'll still be a widow I'll still have debts I still will be hounded by the press for a while. I still have the HIV thing over my head. Nothing is going to unring that bell. So I didn't go to the trial and I could have cared less about it. Other people, by the way, 
I want to add, other homicide survivors feel very differently about that. Many of them feel very keen on being there for every little motion. So it's not a universal experience, but that was my regarding of it. So the trial came and went. They both got convicted. John Carl Fry got the maximum, which was life without the chance of parole. She got the minimum. She was out within months. And there I sat in my house and it was up to me to figure out what my next move was going to be at that point. So I literally got a map out of the United States and I thought, where do I wanna go? And I thought, I love being near the water. I like, I wanna get rid of the snow, I'm tired of it. So I moved to a, a place where I could teach and I went from clinical work as a psychologist to teaching graduate school. And I found I loved it. And I did not speak of this for 30 years. I just didn't want anybody to know. I didn't want to be pitied. I didn't want to be hounded by any press. I didn't want to see another detective. And I just thought, I'm just going to put it behind me. So I started teaching grad school and I loved this course I was teaching that nobody else wanted. It was called the Cross-Cultural Psychotherapy. And I thought, if I'm going to teach about other cultures, then I better experience other cultures. Mm -hmm. So I did. I went to five different continents, and I usually went to far-flung places. And the impact that it had on me in terms of the murder was very profound because it put it in perspective. It was like, I saw people that didn't have hope. They didn't have health care. They didn't have rights. They didn't have clean water. They had nothing but their will and determination. And I started thinking a lot more about what I had going for me and what I should be grateful for than what had happened to me. And it stuck with me to this day. So I came home from those trips over a period of time with a renewed sense of determination to join the living, I guess you could say. And then three events happened within one week that called me out of my shell. I was at work and we had a missing coworker and people were coming up to me and going, can you imagine that having somebody in your family missing? And I said, oh no, and that's my usual <laughs> denial. And then internally I'm thinking, I'm leading yes. a double life, you yes. know? I can so relate. Of course, I know what that feeling is like. And then we had a lecture that week by a physician. I don't remember the topic, but as a side comment, he made the statement that people who live with a secret for years pay a price physically. And I thought, ooh, that's not good. I went back to my office to think about those two things that had happened in the same day. And I looked over at my bookshelf and I have a collection of books, which are still my favorite books that are written by people who've been through some awful situation and came out of it. Like one is the Chilean miners who've been buried for 69 days. Another was um, Mandela's book. And there's another one held hostage about a woman who was a bank manager and her little children. There was dynamite placed on their back if she didn't break into the vault overnight. It was one thing after another. So I looked over at those books and I thought about what that physician said and I thought, you know, if they can tell their story, I can tell my story, too. So I gingerly came out of it and started talking about it with a few people. And much to my surprise, they were not judgmental. They were not pitying. I was astounded. They were just nice. They were a little surprised, but they were supportive. And I was really taken aback. I didn't expect that. So the next big thing that happened is that I reconnected with one of the detectives on the case and he encouraged me to write a book. And I'm like, I should write a novel. And he goes, no, 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 not a novel. <laughs> write the truth because the truth is more important and it's more interesting really. And that took me six years, but I did it. It's called A Life Divided. And my intention was to, and it kind of relates to your introduction. My, my purpose was to, pull the curtain away from Hollywood and to say, forget CSI, this isn't how it goes. According to Hollywood, we have a minor 
role in all of this, that after the person's adjudicated and locked up, that's the end of the story. And I am here to tell you, that's the beginning of the story. And secondly, justice doesn't always happen. It did in my case, but it doesn't. Then I got contacted by a a relative of mine who recommended I start a podcast. And I'm like, I don't know anything about podcasting, but I found out other podcasters are very supportive. Mm. And so I started uh, writing, uh, producing, I guess you could call it uh, the podcast Domino Effect of Murder, where I interview other homicide survivors and people whose career takes them into that realm, like homicide detectives. Mm. And that was eye opening because I felt like I met my tribe. I felt mm-hmm. like th- they got it. I, mm-hmm. I've learned from them and hopefully our interactions mm-hmm. have benefited other people. Mm-hmm. And then a few months ago, I started my second book. It's called Coping with the, Coping with the Homicide of a Loved One. And I hope to have that out mm-hmm. by early next year. And it takes people through the process of the death notification through crime scene cleanup, the funeral, on down the line to long-term adjustment. That's my story. Wow. Wow, Jan. And I mean, all this roller coaster of emotion that is part and parcel of that. I mean, the amount of uncertainty in your story, we are not talking about a few moments, we're talking about years of mm-hmm. of torment that you finally dig away, put behind big walls and, and hide away in the recesses of your brain. But it's, I love it. I love it what this, this medical colleague said that really the issues will stay in the tissues, so to speak. Um, it is you will pay the price. You yeah. will pay if you do not deal with the ongoing stress that often sinks down to a to a subconscious level to a level where where the real torment happens mm-hmm. where ah and and you had to experience that mm-hmm. um my goodness um 1989 um this uh, the 80s you're right it is everything that we take for granted nowadays that the younger generation takes for granted the cell phones the finding an answer within a snap by going for a google search none of that was around and so, on top of that victims rights had not even absolutely. made up weren't on the horizon whatsoever absolutely i was an afterthought in the courtroom and that did didn't change for a long long time i don't know how it is in new zealand but mm. We still have to fight to be there, to be heard, and not feel like a nuisance. Oh, it's so true. It is in the preamble to this, this interview. I, I mentioned that I was the victim of gang violence, and I, I remember my journey, where there was no support whatsoever, and it was in the eighties. Um, it went to court. I put the gang leader uh, my testimony. We together with others put a gang leader behind bars, and uh, there was, uh, and he had his outburst in 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 the courtroom to say, "I'm going to kill you." He only had three years, but I'm going to kill oh. you when I get out. Um, and he looked in my eyes, and there was no very little doubt in my mind that he meant it. And there was no support whatsoever. There was I I didn't get any support really for the hospital when I initially went there and presented beaten and battered. I didn't get any support whatsoever. My parents mm-hmm. didn't click onto an issue such as PTSD, etc. And and I basically I it was the eighties. It was it was when men were real men. So I thought I better turn into a real man, whatever that was, and started training martial arts and mm. became quite good in it. And uh, because I thought I'm. In three years' time, uh, it's going to be a fight for life and death. And, yeah. Yeah, gladiator time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. That was sort of my thinking at the time. And needless to say, my mind was very dark during those years. I was training four hours a day. Um, I I was literally 
focused like a like a light beam. And the the interesting thing was there was no support. There was no nothing. Mm-mm. And I was lucky because it didn't draw me into the darkness, into as in as in the abyss of depression. It drew me into this very dark, constant life and death thing. And nowadays, it, it took me till two years ago to realize we are talking about actually a rip-roaring PTSD, that there was constantly this hypervigilance, constantly flashbacks, things like that happening. Did you experience something like that? Mm-hmm. I mean, how did your your initial emotional journey go? You were desp- describing this hole of darkness, this depression yeah. that initially took hold. And you then described the anger and the resentment when you saw, uh, when you were in a courtroom. What was the journey like? Was it a roller coaster? I felt very self-protective. I withdrew, which is a very common experience among homicide survivors. I wouldn't let anybody within 10 feet of me. I didn't want to be touched. I, didn't, I startled to noises. I had frequent nightmares. I, to this day, still find it very unsettling when I hear a baseball bat because that's how he was killed, with a baseball bat. And sometimes if I go into a restaurant nowadays, well, in the spring especially, and they have a TV monitor on and I'm not expecting it, and I hear I hear either a bat sound or the announcer say, you know, the crack of the bat. It just takes me back. But initially I was very self-protective and angry over irrational things. Like I remember being in the grocery store and being angry over a loaf of bread because loaves of bread are too big for one person. They're meant for families and couples. And I'm like, why don't they package bread? for one person why do they assume people have partners or i go to the hallmark card section and Whoa. see these sympathy cards and i'm like what why isn't one suited for murder they're all about these fluffy birds and flowers that's not the reality of it <laughs> and i just withdrew i i literally closed my curtains i uh. I had sold so many things in my house. It was a big house that I was living out of two rooms. And it was like living in a public building, it echoed. And it was dark and the winter was outside and it didn't feel like home at all. It just felt like a waiting place, like a way station. And so I just thought, if I'm gonna ever get myself out of this, then I have to take back control. Nobody's gonna come offering it to me on a silver platter. That's not going to happen. So what am I going to do? And I thought to take back. And I, I did have my neighbor, bless her heart. She gave me a key to her back door. And she said, anytime you need a guest room, just come on in. No questions asked. Go upstairs and it's yours. And it was a beautiful house. Mm. She had a turret. And I used to, I chose that bedroom. And I remember laying in bed one night and watching the leaves falling outside the windows and the shadows on the wall. And I thought, I'm gonna change my name. I'm gonna change my name and I'm gonna move and I'm gonna start over. And I ought to be grateful that I had that opportunity. I'm young enough to do it. I'm healthy enough to do it. And I think I have enough money to do it. And that was the turning point that set me on the right path. It wasn't by any means the long journey, but at least I stopped feeling like a victim. Mm. I, I, I ran across this, sentiment that said you can either be the hammer or the nail and I thought help I'm going to be a nail I'm done being a victim they've taken everything they can from me my peace of mind my safety my health my money my husband my house my career and I'm done I'm not going to be a victim again and it felt so good and yet sad in a way when I packed up and moved out of the area because I loved where I lived. I met, I had my friends and I was used to it, but I thought, no, the greater good is I can need my head back. So it's, and then I had a friend call me one time and he said very gently, 
he's almost like an afterthought. He said, well, you know, life is meant to be an adventure. And I never forgot that. It was like, that means this is going somewhere. It means maybe something good will come out of this, but I won't know if I don't try. I know what staying is going to do, but I don't know what leaving is going to do. And it's an option. And I ought to be grateful I have an option and I'm going to take it. I could always reverse it and come back if it's Hmm. a bad choice. And I'll never forget what it felt like to get on the road in my car and drive and drive and drive. And I I got I made so much good time. I was way ahead of the moving van, but (laughs) everything was new. You know, the people were new. The climate was new. And I just went, I just sealed it off. And that was my way of getting back control, which ultimately proved to be the right thing. What I'm trying to say is that being private and, you know, close to the vest about it was beneficial for many years. But after a time, it got to be detrimental. And it was such a way of life. It was hard not to be that way again. But once I stopped it and opened myself up to people, I was just amazed how kind they were. What was the time frame between the the death of your husband and the the moment that you thought, now enough is enough, I have been grieving long enough now, it's time to move on. What are we talking about? About two years. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, and I would assume that is a very similar time frame for many of the people that you spoke to um, when yes. it came to 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 moving on. Mm-hmm. You can't just say, "Okay, cool, a week is over, let's party." Uh, no. That doesn't work. No. But with some of the people I've met, there's other variables that can drag it out. Like in one case, I'm thinking about Kevin McCall, and his the perpetrator didn't even get caught for three years. Mm-hmm. So that put everything on ice for a while. Hmm. Um, some people have had two murders in their family. Hmm. So they go back and revisit it. So it takes them longer. I mean, there's all kinds of situations that hmm. I've run into on the podcast. Everybody's a little different. In fact, what I did one year is I went back and I listened to every single interview back to back to back. And I wanted to, of my podcast, and I wanted to find out what is the theme? Is there any commonalities. And what I came away with after listening to hours of conversation was this, that the homicides themselves are very unique. There's no two that are alike, but the aftermath is not. It's very predictable. The social stigma, the physical repercussions, the social uh, ambiguities, the legal system and its stressors and so forth and so on. And so that was an eye opener. I had never read that. I have never heard that, but that was my experience with it. And it would be a logical thing because there are only so many emotions that a person can go through. And it will be sort of the classical stages of grief in one variation or the other from denial through to to anger, resentment, to acceptance, whatever the stages are. And whatever you believe in this journey is, it would be a variation of a theme that mm-hmm. you go through. Mm-hmm. And I must say, if I do the maths for me, I would say it was I was a bit of a slower, slower person, about four years. Um, and I think for me, ultimately, what gave me the relief was the realization that actually I had moved away from that town. Um, I there was no way in hell that this guy would ever find me. So that suddenly gave me the relief and my insight also changed because by that time my school was finished. I had started uh, at university and I discovered uh, alcohol and girls and uh, in, in a good way at that time. Uh, later on, regrettably, that, that uh, certainly the alcohol didn't go so well. Um, but it was it, it gave me the relief and the release that I can actually laugh again, that I can actually relax again, that I don't have to look behind my shoulder, that I don't have to be mm. constant in constant awareness, mm-hmm. in constant readiness, literally readiness for fight. Yeah, yeah. So. And that's hard physically. Isn't it? Well, you have no, your you... body in that state. 
Exactly. And it was, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. Yet I was training for hours a day. So to a certain degree, my training released some of the tension. So I think True. with hindsight, that actually gave me probably a bit of sanity there. But it, I, I remember doing a paper run as a, as a teenager and I uh, suddenly a dog sort of jumped there towards the left and I was ready to take the dog on in, and it, it felt like a, like a film scene. And I thought, oh, God. <laughs> okay. And, and of course, I, you- I did. A, I did a physical reaction too. I took up triathlons. Right. And I did them. I did triathlons for several years and that was my release too physically. So between the international travel uh-huh. and the triathlons, I felt much better. Mm. I was in training to do another one in May of 2015. I was climbing a soft muddy hill and I slipped and fell, broke my arm, went into the ER and they diagnosed cancer. Oh. So, and it was a bad cancer. It's uh, one that doesn't have a cure. And it, my blood cancer was 86% cancerous. And they were amazed I was doing triathlons while I had that in me. And in the interim, I have to go back and say I adopted two special needs girls whose mother had been murdered and raised them. And when I needed a stem cell transplant, my youngest of the two, the 23-year-old, said she'd be my caregiver. I didn't think I needed one. I said, I don't want one. But they said, we won't do the stem cell transplant without one. So you have to have one. I um, said, so, okay. Well, it turns out they were right. <laughs> I couldn't think straight. I was very weak. I needed somebody to take my temperature every hour and administer my medications and so on. And I remember looking over at her one evening and she looked so tired. And I said to her, honey, I said, I I feel like I've put too much of a burden on you. You look so tired. And it's, I know this is a lot of responsibility. And she said to me, you know what, mom? She said, you saved my life and now I'm going to save your life. I'll never forget that. Wow. So, you know, life is a journey. <laughs> you don't know what's in front of you. Sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes not. <laughs> oh dear. Um, how are you feeling nowadays about violence? Are you a woman? I'm not sure if you if you can carry a pistol in in your state. Um, are you can. you can? Are you are you uh, a concealed carrier or? My husband. I remarried, and my husband's encouraging me to be. He does. Mm. Um, he's a big guy. He's a retired uh, lieutenant colonel. Mm. He's kind of on my weapon, I guess you could say in a way. But um, I did take some basic training in firearms from a police station. And I took martial arts as well. I wasn't very good at it, but I did some judo training. I remember my dad laughing at me like, oh, what are you going to do? Because I'm five feet tall, right? Uh, and he's a big guy. And I yeah. flipped him. And he wasn't yes. laughing after yes. that. Because I knew that being smaller has an advantage sometimes. Absolutely. Your, you know, your your uh, weight is differently distributed. Absolutely. Your center of gravity. Uh-huh. Um, how do I feel about crime? I feel like it's my duty, my passion to speak about it, to dispel myths about it. I, on the one hand, don't want to exaggerate the feelings that people have, like everybody's going to murder everybody. No, it's true that murders have rates have gone up since COVID, but the odds are still way better. You're going to die of cancer or a heart attack. And I like to dispel myths about crime. I like to educate people on how to be safe. That's one of the reasons I like doing my podcast. And I just feel defiant about it. It's like I've been tested and I came through. I know age is working against me. I'm not 30 anymore, Mm. but I... I don't walk around anymore feeling like a victim at all. Mm. I'm, I'm a little wary at times, yeah. But I don't scare easy anymore. I used to, but I don't now. And I feel uh, like it's made my confidence rise. 
Oh, absolutely. And I was not referring to you feeling as a victim. I was uh, referring to you more as a potential avenger, as a as a woman who is going out there and is actually where the pendulum has swung uh, towards oh. towards. Uh, the 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 more aggressive are uh, these are are you a proponent of the of the death penalty for any capital crimes uh, for example? No, I'm not, and it might surprise you. The reason the reason I'm not in favor of the death penalty is for two reasons. One is it costs too much monetarily. Actually, three reasons. One is the monetary factor. Two, I think it's more punishing to have them sit in a six by six cell and think about what they've done for 40 years than to put them out of their misery. And I don't like the thought of what it does to their families to have them put to death. What I don't get any gratification out of that. Mm. And then there are wrongful convictions and people is- have been put to death. Who ha- So it's not mm. that I'm necessarily against capital punishment because of religious reasons or anything like that. I just look at it in practical terms. Like it's not the right thing because we already spend too much money on the criminal justice system. And I think it's more punishment to sit in a six by six and think about your miserable life and what you did for 40 or 50 years than to be put out of your misery. I wouldn't got any gratification out of John Fry being put to death. I would rather have him sit in a cell and be confined because it must be awful. I mean, I've never been in jail, but I've seen movies about it. That's where I take my information and it looks just bleak. Mm. Plus, as you age, there's going to be younger guys around you that will be testing you. And I'm thinking that's good because he needs that if he survived. But he didn't. He died in prison of Pepsi. I was about to say, was there ever any remorse from him? No, he bragged about it. I watched an interview of him that was done on, I forget the name of the TV show, Mm. The Reporters. And he was smirking and glib and no, Mm. he's not capable of it. Mm -mm. And I never caught an apology, of course, that meant anything. (laughs) I think the reality is that one in 10 have got personality disorders and one in 100 is the ballpark for being a psychopath and a sociopath. So if you accept that, then there will be a lot of people uh, that you have come across in your life who were smiling in your face and you would have been quite happy to literally rip out your throat. So that is uh, for their own reasons, whatever, however un- understand, unimaginable they are to us. But these people are out there. So they. I ran a. I heard a frightening statistic. I don't know how the research was done, but it said that in a person's lifetime, if they live to seventy, they've probably walked past a murderer thirty-six times in their mm-hmm. life. That's. Uh, I don't know. That is, Probably depends where you live, too. Well, exactly, exactly <laughs> right. And But I think the reality is there is a huge undercurrent of violence in our society. And we have no clue about it because most of us try to put the, the head in the sand. Or they live lives where seemingly they don't see that apart from watching the news. Mm-hmm. The reality is you have no clue what is happening just with your neighbor over there or over there or over there behind closed doors. There will be rape, there will be uh, incest, there will be child molestation, there will be so many things. There is, we are living in in a world where violence is a steady part of your day. Some Mm -hmm. of us choose to accept it and see it. Some of us choose to look the other way. I think that is how I look at things. Um, it is uh, it is forbidden to le- to listen to police radio, but ultimately, if you were to do so, if you were to listen in, you would be amazed mm-hmm. about what is really going on. And if you speak to policemen and uh, police officers and uh, uh, other people in on the front line, uh, it is it is a brutal world out there. Yeah. Of so, ER docs and exactly, yeah, exactly right. So I think therefore it is so important to to protect yourself. 
and when I say protect yourself, is to accept that this is not a perfect world, that people are malicious, and that even if, if even good people can turn into rabbit dogs if you mix in alcohol or drugs or and or drugs in there, it is you before you blink, you could be in a scenario that threatens your health or your life. Mm-hmm. So I think that is that is something I want to clearly spell out there. And unfortunately, I will be preaching to the converted because those people <laughs> who are interested in today's in today's thing, they of course know that damn well because they have been touched by violence as well, and um, by trauma. So it's bizarre, and it is. But I think the important bit is be realistic. There are a lot of people. There are a lot of assholes out there. So therefore, learn how to read cues. Don't walk through the world with your cell phone like that. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, that will not get you very safe over a street or leave alone for your life. So, I mean, there's a wonderful book out there that I recommend to women, and it's called the um, the. Uh, it's written by Gavin De Becker, and it's called oh, what's the name of that? Something of. I'll have to think of it. Damn, I always have the tip of my tongue. Guys, at this stage, look down the the gift of fear, right? The gift of fear. (laughs) The gift of fear. It's a wonderful book. And it the basic thing is talks about is trust your hunches. Hmm. Don't dismiss them. And if people pay attention to their hunches, they're gonna be right more than they're gonna be wrong. Hmm. But you have to break through that screen of denial to pay attention to your hunches. That we don't live in Disneyland. There are people that will take advantage, whether it's financially or physically or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, think of think about it ahead of time. Don't just go around the world with blinders on. Mm-hmm. Oh, dear. I mean, there's so much that we that we could say. But I think this message that you have just said is so beautiful. And but the, what I want to stress now is that whilst the chance is actually reasonably high that violence will touch you in your life. Or someone it, you know. Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. It, it is important to realize that it is normal to feel incredibly shocked. It is normal for denial. It is normal for you to be down and out. It's normal for you to have flashbacks and all those kind of things. That is, these are normal reactions to some very abnormal situations. Mm-hmm. We need to say that, so whilst we say flashbacks and, and, and hypervigilance is a sign of PTSD, there are also signs in the immediate aftermath of trauma as part and parcel of your body, dealing with it, r- working with it. So six weeks, three months, something like that, is actually very normal that you go through a massive roller coaster. And yeah. so accept that for what it is. So don't give yourself immediately a label um, of depression or any other mental health thing you you want to, to take on. Just give yourself, give you and your brain and your subconscious actually a chance to to digest what has just occurred to you. Mm-hmm. And, and it is so important to accept that, number one. But then thereafter, it is even more important if things have not settled down and if you have not yet had the chance to talk to someone about your experiences and about your emotions. And, and that could mean professional treatment, but it could also mean a self-support group. Ah, exactly. Connecting with others who have been through what you've been through because it's so different to have exactly. a conversation with somebody who you, you could finish their sentences for them. Correct. Because you both are on the same page. Isn't it? That's exactly, you You need to find your tribe. And nowadays, oh, whilst there's a lot to be said about the internet and it invading our privacy and invading our lives, there is actually something good here because you mm-hmm. can actually find people like Jan yeah. who actually have gone through hell and back alone, but have learned from the lessons and are now going out there to say, no, let's let's make my pain count. Let's make my right. my insight count. Here is my book. That was my story. Here's my podcast. Listen to those guys because they have been where I have been. And maybe that's the reason why you listen in. So, Jan, where can people find you? Where can people listen more to you? 
I've made it real simple. I have one thing. <laughs> it's all together in one place. All they have to do is go to my website and it's www.jancantyphd.com. That's J-A-N-C-A-N-T-Y-P-H-D.com. It's all small letters. It's all in one place. I don't do tweeters and all that other stuff. I just try to keep it simple. I don't have time to do all that stuff. Um, and so, um, I have uh, also, in case of any of your listeners have had a situation like mine, I do administer a private Facebook group for other homicide survivors. That's beautiful. Well. Guys, look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast because we will have put the links in there. And it is so important uh, to, to if you have got, if, if we have triggered you, if we have pushed your buttons and you feel my goodness, this is actually my story. And it might be a quarter of a decade, a quarter of a century old, but it is now time for you to actually work through it. What better way to do than, than actually talk to Jan, but maybe also talk to your GP, to your family physician first and get a checkup to see if there, if your sadness, your, your emotions might not have actually a damn good reason of something happening in you. If your thyroid gland is out of kilter, it can make you feel quite low. Uh, mm -hmm. There are other things that, that can cause emotions to be overwhelming. So, you know, have a, have a chat with your family physician or with a doctor. No. And that yeah, is don't really, struggle on your own. That, that's exactly it. And it, whilst, whilst Jen is a great resource there, um, if you rather prefer a face-to-face -face with someone, then again, your family physician, uh, GP, will be the perfect person because they know the lay of the land around you. They know which resources are available to you. And often enough, we don't have much money and there are no two cents to rub together. Well, there are resources that are for free and uh, your GP, your, your family doctor can guide you there. So that's the beautiful thing there. So... What I'm trying to say is there is help out there. There are people out there who have been in your shoes and who are so willing to share their experiences and maybe be there to, to guide you a little bit along your own path. And that is so beautiful. And when we are in the darkness, we don't see it. I, I did not see it, that I felt it impossible that someone could feel as much pain as, as me in my soul and poor me, poor me, poor me, another one. Um, so, you know, <laughs> oh, <poor me. laughs> I see. Yeah, that's right. So, no, honestly, I lived that life and I could not see that there was help. And so and, and I had to be be dragged out of my misery and put in rehab. And suddenly I realized, shit, there it is. All of them around me, all the other inmates, were feeling more or less the same. Different variations, but here we are. There was help out there. It was waiting all along. I just couldn't see it. Yeah, the so, path can be there even though you can't see the path. <laughs> absolutely. So, therefore, guys, if, if thank you so much, everyone out there, for for listening. But I'm, I'm wanting to thank you already in advance for taking action, for seeking help. And they might that that help might be to actually knock on the door of Jan's support group and of the uh, of the Facebook group where people are, of your potential future tribe are meeting <laughs> and and you might as well say hey look guys um, here it's me and I'm I've gone through some really dark dark shit here so Jan ah uh, thank you so much for being so honest. And your your story humbled me, and it is it is a very dark story, but it is a, a beautiful story, because you have taken the lead. You're no longer the nail; you're the hammer. You are taking action, and that's what I'm all about. That's what what actually virtually every every single guest on my show is all about: taking action, tiny baby steps, but defining who is the new you, who do you want to be when you grow up. Okay, that person and which steps do I need to take to get to that to that new you? And that is so beautiful. In your case, you were packing everything up and you were leaving leaving your place and, and resettling. And that is sometimes what it takes. But I mean that's probably a bigger step to take. Uh, rest assured, guys, you don't need to sell up your house today. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> rest assured. It might no. be as as little as looking into the description of the of this this show to find 
uh, Jan's details and to maybe to listen to her show, um, to actually to to hear, wow, there are actually other people out there. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a major change. I mean, mm -hmm. every journey starts with one step. It could mm -hmm. be as simple as saying, I'm going to walk around the block today. I'm going to not drink today. I'm going to call somebody today. Exactly. I'm going to be grateful today for my pet. It could mm. be anything, but it starts the process, just mm. like the day I took out the map of the mm. country and decided, what am I going to do? It's, it was a small thing to do, but ultimately it ended up, mm. in a, I'm in a very different place today. I mean, I'm remarried with kids and I'm a grandma and um, I'm happy. And it's in my rear view to the degree that it can be, but it, but we know that it's, in the short term, it's hard to see where it's all going to go, and you don't always know. But we do know that that inaction and doing self-sabotaging things isn't the answer. Mm. And if it doesn't work, that makes no sense to repeat it. And trust me, she is right, because I've tried that with vodka bottles. I've looked in many of them. Yep. I wanted to make sure that it's really true. So one, one, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. Uh, and nowadays we both live lives which are full of hope, which are full of, full of joy, full of crazy serenity at times. And it's just, fuck me, it's so beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. So guys, come along. And Jen, to you, thank you so much for the hard work that you're doing, sure. for being out there to be a, a beacon of hope, a beacon of light uh, in the darkness of so many uh, other victims of violence. So thank you so much. And please keep doing what you're doing. And uh, maybe we can turn this world, make this world a little bit better, one interview at a time. Hey. <laughs> It's my hope. Thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure. And you guys out there, stay strong. I believe in you. Look after yourself. Hey. Bye.